Welcome to PLN Rewind. Tune in to catch up on the Progressive Law Network's past events and discussions about the many ways in which to engage with legal challenges to bring about positive social change in our community. Gadigal, and I show up to those um, all the time. And you can witness what you witness, certainly down where you guys are in Nam, there's, um, you know, huge, huge protests. Uh, if you look at different cities around this country, there are certain demands um, that come out of different protests. And I think that what we need to do is not only show up in these spaces and listen to those demands, but we also have to think critically about what they're asking us to do as advocates, as future lawyers. Um, for example, I saw a call to action in the north. Um, he, it wasn't here. It wasn't. It wasn't down in Nam. But I saw a call to action. The first call to action was to abolish police and defund. Um, to, to abolish prisons and defund police. The fifth call to action was to charge the police and convict the police. So I think you know the inconsistencies around the demands for calls to action. We have to not only show up to these spaces, but we have to think critically about how do we, as lawyers, use our legal skill set to respond, and and what that means. I think in the colony of Australia is it means that we actually have not only to worry about black deaths, we have to actually turn our minds to the foundational issues of this country, that the system, the, the system that we're highly skilled and highly trained in, which is the legal and political system continues to oppress and it continues to kill black people lawfully. And I think one of the things that we, we, with very little accountability, with virtually no accountability, you guys have seen with Aunty Tanya Day down south and, and a lot of um, black deaths in custody, that there, there is no accountability when we die at the hands of the state. I think though, credit to black activism here is that we are much more in advanced in terms of, of, of trying to get there in terms of accountability. So I'll, I'll give you this example. The example is Breonna Taylor in America, um, where we had witnessed in the last week, the outcome of that was there was going to be no charges of her murder, that in fact, the only issue that was raised was that the, 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 the shots that missed her could potentially be unlawful. And I think that really turned African-Americans' minds to the fact that it's not just about defunding. It's not just about, you know, um, getting resources out of the cops. It's actually also about how you affect these laws. And if you're affecting, um, if you can't affect systemic change um, and influence systemic change and accountability, then I think America is actually at that point of reflection. Whereas here in Australia, we're already kind of like royal commissions don't work. We've had a royal commission. We're not getting any implementation. And we know now for too long, politicians have gotten away with very little action and very little accountability. So I think despite the different context, Black Lives Matter in principle has raised an important issue, but you can't implant into our jurisdiction here um, the calls to action because they're very different and we're on a different trajectory. That's that. That's where I think my mind is at with that with those issues. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, in principle, as you said, 
that the wants are different, that the, the social context, the historical context are completely different. Um, but for me, when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, for me, I'm talking about yeah, Aboriginal deaths in custody, framing it within that context so that people understand who's Black Lives Matter here in Australia. And, and as you said, Tila, it's, it's our lives shouldn't matter after we pass away, after we've been um, you know, brutalised within the police presence, within police custody. Our lives matter every day. And I think for me, the, uh, one of the takeaways that I've had from the, particularly after you know, the tragic murder of George Floyd is that it enabled at least for a moment of time our voices that we've been calling out for, for you know, decades upon decades, it gave them a platform. Um, and I think like situations like this, panels like this, we need to be continuing to amplify the voices who are calling out for these actions, who are calling out for, for this change, for justice. Um, you know, I think it enabled, you know, moments for us to, you know, highlight the tragic case of Arnie Tanya Day. Um, it enabled, you know, to highlight the, the tragic case of David Dunga Jr. Uh, and it, it's, it's all well and good to put up a black square on, on Instagram. It's all well and good to, you know, hashtag Black Lives Matter, but what are you doing beyond that? Who are you influencing within your sphere to ensure that you can create change in your own little way? Um, and yes, like, I can't speak from a legalese background, uh, but I speak from, you know, an advocate's background. Uh, I speak from the work that I do within government, working, for, sorry, working with government to try and implement policy reform. And, you know, in Victoria, we're, we're I guess, I don't know, for use of a better word, grateful, I'd say grateful because a lot of work has gone into developing this into, into establishing it, but we have the Aboriginal Justice Agreement, which is in its fourth phase at the moment, um, which has been created by the Aboriginal Justice Caucus and many of the statewide Aboriginal organisations, which you know has a set of targets that um, the Victorian State Government and the Department of Justice and Community Safety here in Victoria, um, but they have to fund, they have to implement, and they have to try and actually reach for and it's, it's an accountability measure that, you know, we reflect and look back on and hold them, the Department of Justice on every day. We have a number of Aboriginal justice forums. I think there's uh, three annually, which look at, you know, some of these things such as, you know, the tragic death of Ani Tanya Day and, and just supporting, you know, the Day family in, in their advocacy, um, you know, holding the coroner's court accountable to these things. So. It's, it's for me, it's about how do we get, how do we, what, what does our sphere of influence look like um, professionally, personally, and, and how do we enable, you know, that these voices aren't just lost after two, three, four weeks because the trend isn't trending anymore because, you know, the photos aren't necessarily popping up on your timeline anymore. Um, yeah. What do we need to do to ensure that, you know, Aboriginal voices aren't being lost? Um, yes. They're very different contexts as we sort of said before, but Black Lives Matter, the movement, I guess, as a notion, as a premise, I feel like enables Aboriginal activism to come to the fore. And it, uh, that's why I try to use it for at least. Yeah, I'll just jump in there because I think someone else is on uh, mute. But look, to, to be quite frank, like it's actually really freaking frustrating in Australia because we have way too many people that are way too comfortable you know, like you, 80 of us can zoom in here and not have to worry about, um, you know, feeding ourselves tonight. And I think that that is in and of itself a challenge in this country that we have a majority of the, the middle class too extraordinarily comfortable in the way in which it can show up to a protest and then walk home and forget about it. Like 
Dougie would know, and he's explained to you his family history um, so kindly and generously that we don't get to rest when we get home from our day, day jobs. This shit for us is like 24-7. We don't get to go to sleep at night um, and think that we're going to have a great day the next day because for us it's like fronting up to a war. It's the war but in a different way. And I think that one of the frustrating things is, you know, as non-Black people are always looking to us for answers, like you guys need to actually come up with what you're going to do, as Dougie said, in your own sphere. Like, don't wait for us. We are less than 3% of the country. And that in terms of, you know, there's this tension as well, like people who are non-Aboriginal or non-Black sometimes go, oh, I don't want to stuff it up. I don't want to get out of place. Well, the reality is if you're going to step into, in, into creating change, you're going to stuff up at some point. But the most important thing is that you pick yourself up and you learn from your mistake and you keep going in terms of, of the commitment you make to yourself and your life. These, this kind of activism and Black Lives Rust has mattered since the day we were born to the day we die. And if we don't leave a legacy behind that's actually going to rewrite the narrative of this country, then we, like, what are we here for? Seriously, what are we here for? Because it's so frustrating for me on Gadigal country, not like you guys. Um, I, I, we haven't really been in lockdown here. So uh, for me, it's been going to the front line of the, of the criminal justice system every day where I have consistently felt depleted and exhausted, but still ran defended hearings and then gone and showed up to protests and then, you know, gone to see sick families in hospital. And I think that while unfortunately for some of us, it has been difficult going into lockdown, the, it's a very different sphere of the world when I, all of my clients are in custody. In, you know, and the feeling of if I don't get them bail, shit, they might be more at risk of, of COVID-19. And, and our government has been a lot more, uh, I guess, strict on, on not freeing people when it comes to, to COVID-19. It's just kind of glossed over it. But I mean, each and every person here, 81 people here actually need to get really uncomfortable with their own lives because you live too comfortably. And in terms of um, creating change, like I was reading this book recently about many you would many of you would know Redfern, right? The, the, the suburb of Redfern in, in Sydney, which is the heart of what we call um, black political activism, like radical activism. And I mean, people need to understand these kinds of histories where it was law students who were helping out black people on the front line getting brutally like bashed by police in the middle of the inner city that had the power to change the system and create the you know the country's ever first aboriginal legal service and the aboriginal legal service was established at the you know with the organization of of law students who got shit done like where is our uh where where is our motivation to do things when you know where the money doesn't pay you don't get paid in my job you don't you don't do my job for money you do it for the change and the social justice and i just think when you start to understand how radical law students were in the 60s and 70s how they were better organized um, and more in touch with the community and they were responding 
to community needs, like showing up at 10.30 at night. It was my law school, UNSW, that gave the first phone line to the Aboriginal Legal Service. And then it wasn't until, you know, years later that the mainstream legal aid started. I mean, where is our courage, even as students, um, to, to think that we have the power to step up and create and redesign this country? And I think that's the frustration I'm at. Like, I'm clearly at a frustrated point where, yes, I go to my day job, but at the end of the day, where is everyone? Where is everyone showing up 24-7 and organising in a way that legitimately, like, held the front line? And it was students who did that. It was students who were organised around Black activists. Yeah, I totally agree with that, Tila. I think that was kind of where we were coming from with trying to organize this event because at least um you know speaking from my student club we felt like there was a lack of that connection between law students and activism and advocacy um and which kind of leads to you know the next question that we had um and you spoke about this idea of like radical change and radical activism um what do you say i guess something that i also struggle is like what do you say to people who think these actions are too radical or too unfeasible or too excessive. I know that, you know, often we are, as law students, sometimes expected to operate within this legal system that we're studying in. Um, yeah, what what do you think about that? And what could we say to people who think that these ideas of prison abolition or, you know, defunding the police are just too excessive or too radical? Well, I think the initial response is that fighting for human rights is not radical at all. Like fighting for human rights is the most simple thing that we should be doing as humans. And that we live in a country that was built on racism. Like it's literally written into this nation's laws that standing up and fighting for people for systemic change is the most simple act of standing in solidarity for human rights. And it's not radical at all. And I think the other thing is, um, Del, you know, the movements in America have gotten so big and so strong because um, they, they understand this theory of rebellious lawyering. They understand this theory of movement lawyering. At law schools here, we don't get taught these theories of rebellious and movement lawyering. We're taught that lawyering is, um, is, an, is an independent, prestigious, privileged uh, piece of paper and that our role is to be independent of, of our social constructs. Like, and I just think that that is, can't be furthest from the truth. And I don't think our profession was always that way. When you look at the 60s and 70s, it, it was um, at the forefront of change. And the forefront of change in Redfern in those days, back in, in, in New South Wales as well, was standing up against systemic racism here and then across the west of New South Wales. And so I guess my point is that, um, you know, in terms of rebellious lawyering, um, we need to get better at that, we need, which, is, which is about using our legal skill set to work better with activists and organisations like Doggies. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think Annie had a question that we might move on to. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, unless, Dougie, you wanted to weigh in on that at all. No, no, no. I think she literally summed it up amazingly. Okay, awesome. Well, I guess a bit of a different question. Um, 
interested, I guess, in the role of young people, and this doesn't necessarily mean law students or young lawyers, but to what extent do you think young people should be at the forefront of enacting change on issues such as racial and definitely legal justice as well, given that most of us are not um, in those traditional positions of power within institutions and structures? Yeah, really great question. Um, I think for me, I often think about, and I hold this within the realm of we as young people have that passion, have that energy, have that um, the courage to not be sort of set in our ways and, and, and we look with an op- a fairly open mind. Um, for me, I'm always guided by my elders and I speak with strength because of the guidance that they've given me and because of the wisdom that they've enabled in me. Um, but I think that that's where the real power comes from, from our young people, um, by wanting change, a better future for themselves. We often talk about, you know, uh, rhetorically that, you know, once the next generation passes away, the old generation passes away, it'll be better for us. But we can't and just expect that to happen. We need to make those changes. We need to work and do those things now. Um, and, you know, even though we may not be sort of set up professionally, you know, may not be in positions of power to, to uh, implement wide systemic change on, I guess, um, you know, national level, there's still things that we can do. And, you know, don't want to be sort of tied down by the, 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 you know, can'ts and, and the won'ts or this has never been done before sort of questions that we often come up against, you know. The Korea Youth Council, for example, came out of um, some work that happened within the ATSIC days, you know, the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Commission. Um, you know, a lot of young people here in Victoria, we, you know, we create the, the vast majority, I think about 55 to 60% of the Victorian Aboriginal population is under the age of 25. Um, Back in the ASIC days, they, they recognised this, that you know, there needed to be a, a, an organisation, a, a platform for young people to, to speak their truths and to sit at the table you know, alongside their elders with respect to the elders. So um, that's how the KYC came about. And so, you know, we often get called on and cross, as I said before, the cross depth and breadth of government to, to speak for young people. Um, and I feel like this is just one, you know, one example of the power that can happen when we enable young people to sit at the table and in a respectful manner and, and you know, call for change. Um, we've got the energy, we've got the passion, we've got, I feel like, this wants and, and, and thirst for, for, for change. And it's, you know, within um, Aboriginal affairs here in Victoria, it's many young people who are, who are organising the marches, you know, there's the warriors of Aboriginal resistance who are the ones, vastly young people who have organised the Black Lives Matter marches, who have organised the Invasion Day marches. And it's, 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 we've been able to um, really create this, this momentum, you know. There was, the media might have reported, you know, 10,000, but it was well over 100,000 people here at the Black Lives Matter movement march uh, back in June, July. You know, I was, I, was, I was obviously there and it was the biggest march that I've been a part of, easily, hands down the biggest march. And the vast majority of the crowd was young people. And so for me, that shows that, you know, once we, we allow ourselves to be uncomfortable, uh, once we allow ourselves to listen to the, the people who are advocating for change, the Aboriginal people, and educate yourself, how do you go back from that? How do you go to the march and see 100,000 people all marching for, you know, with, with respect for Aboriginal people and, and, and Aboriginal deaths in custody? How do you then go back to your home and not want to help create change to those people around you? So, yeah, I feel like young people, we, we've got a role. And just because we may not be in positions of power, we can definitely have a lot of influence on the people around us for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a 
yeah, really great response. Um, someone who is a young person and having to navigate a lot of these like institutions and politics. Um, I guess the next question that we wanted to touch on, um, which, you know, has been addressed a little bit already, but uh, just on a little bit of a deeper level, things like protesting and civil disobedience generally is quite antithetical to the idea of like, you know, the legal system and law and, you know, what, as Teela mentioned, we're expected to embody as um, law students. But do you think that these ideas are at all like reconcilable? And I guess given your experience as well, has it changed your mind in terms of the space that you're operating in? Have you ever thought that, you know, you could do more as, you know, away from operating within the legal system? And what advice would you have for students who kind of feel fatigued by, you know, these ideas not being compatible with one another? Either of, to both of you, open to. I just wanna say that the work that the Career Youth Council does is, is amazing. Like we don't have any anything like that here um in this state and, and it really is a beacon of hope in terms of um when you look at what especially black youth are capable of um and, and elevating their voices i think that they do really important mobilizing work um in terms of your question del like the you know if we don't have the courage to step up and um, embrace change through using the skills that we work so hard to get and do, then we're, we're simply upholding the status quo. And the status quo is literally killing black people. Like it is literally killing us. Whether you see it in a cell or whether you, the statistics speak for themselves, we are dying younger. 53% of First Nations peoples are under 25. We do not have the luxury of time on our hands. And so I think that as, as lawyers, you know, we, we have to not settle for upholding these institutions because if we do go into these spaces um, and, and I'll, you know, I'll give you an example. As a black woman, it's difficult to navigate. You know, I have a, a legal skill set, but I have a community obligation. My obligation is always to my community. My obligations are always to my people. And, and they don't fit nicely within each other at all. I'm expected on the one hand to dress, to speak, to advocate like a lawyer. And I take that responsibility really seriously because it, it then builds my credibility in different spaces. And I think I, the message is don't just see yourself as a legal advocate, don't just see yourself as the mainstream kind of lawyer. We must see ourselves in all different spaces and show up in all different spaces in order to create the profound changes that we need to disrupt systems. And, you know, I work in a government agency. It's difficult to disrupt a government agency from the inside. However, you know, as I said, my job doesn't finish at five o'clock. Um, I'm organizing, I'm doing community meetings, I'm speaking to my titters, I'm down with what's going on in the community. And I think that um, white people and non-Aboriginal people have the luxury of walking away because you all sit with so much power and privilege. And you have to actually check yourselves 
Like you have to actually check yourself and go, okay, if this is my role, then what am I doing beyond it? Because we're not going to create the changes that we need in terms of, um, of just going to a nine to five job. You know, I, had, I was fortunate to go to Harvard um, for a bit. And at Harvard, they, they teach you this theory um, about new power and new power structures. And it's about, you know, the, we have to rethink how we see power functioning in a society. Um, and it's not just through, you know, the prime minister or the premier or politicians. In fact, as a community collective, if we were able to better organize, we do have enough power to shift and create and influence change. But I think that, you know, neoliberalism and individualization of, of looking at our lives has really impacted on us. Whereas black fellas, we live in a community, you know, we see ourselves as an ecosystem. And I think white people have to unlearn that. You have to unlearn your own little individual world and see yourself operating in an ecosystem like we do. That's 100% right. I really want to echo those, those comments that, yeah, being able to sort of silo yourself between, you know, what you do as a profession and then being able to go home is, is, is a, I guess, a, a state of mind that, yeah, I guess me, the Aboriginal man, that I don't get the privilege of. As you said, Taylor, you know, just because I might clock on at nine o'clock and clock off at five doesn't mean that my job's done. Um, doesn't mean that I'm no longer accountable to community. Doesn't mean that I'm no longer accountable to my family. And, you know, there's, it's, I guess, one of the great benefits of working for the Korea Youth Council is that we, I guess, have that some level of autonomy and flexibility that, you know, if something happens, it's a family emergency because we're Aboriginal organisation, because the vast majority of our people that work for, for us Aboriginal, we understand what it's like. And, you know, there's been many cases where I've had to, you know, help my dad or help my younger sister with something that's been going on and, and I've had to step out for the day. Um, I use that as an example because, you know, just because I'm able to do it doesn't mean that, I guess you as non-Aboriginal people, as, as white people, aren't able to to be more in tune with, you know, the social constructs in which you live in, be more in tune and, and, and think about, you know, how do I continue to play my role in society beyond the nine to five grind, beyond your profession as, you know, as, as a lawyer or, or as a legal advocate, um, to not just compartmentalise things just because it's easy to do so. And I think, you know, once you actually... For me, it's, it comes down to community accountability. And I don't think that non-Aboriginal people have that. They don't have people you're accountable to besides your workplace and besides maybe your close close nuclear family. And I've had these conversations many a time, you know, in uni with, with many of my friends. Um, I went to Trinity College and Queen's College. And, you know, the discussions that I have with friends around, you know, their levels of responsibilities. You know, me, I'm the eldest child of my family. I'm the eldest grandchild on both sides of my family. So it was always a matter of, I'm not just trying to get this degree for me so I can get a daily job, so I can like get a flash house and a flash car. It was so I could set the standards for my younger siblings, so I could set the standards for my younger cousins. And, you know, achieving this showed them that it was attainable for them. And I was constantly accountable to, to them. You know, when I got scholarship, the vast majority of the stuff that I bought was for my family, you know, buying plane tickets so that my younger, my younger cousins could go and see their auntie that lived in Queensland, you know, buying tickets so that my siblings could go see mum in Perth. Um, and so it was these sort of things that I was constantly accountable for. I feel like none of my friends ever had that, you know. It was very individualistic. It was very internal, you know. They were doing their law degree because their dad was a lawyer and they feel like they have to do it. 
or they may they were doing a you know a degree in medicine because they it's they want to be able to help people out and it was sort of like well what's the actual yes it's all good to help people out but what are you doing every day beyond just you as a student how are you affecting and influencing people in your circles as i sort of said before who are you accountable to and if if you only have a certain few people then you know i feel like you need to go out and actually get in touch with community and when i say community like aboriginal people develop those relationships so that way you know you are trusted and and you are um brought into those circles but then also so you're then accountable for to those people um to you know help implement change for for us because yeah we, we can't do it on our own you know less than three percent can only do so much but with the mobilization of you know people all, all around society we can help to influence that change um, yeah. Awesome. Thanks. That was a, it's a really interesting point about accountability, I think. Um, and sort of touching on that, well, what you just mentioned, mobilization. And I guess also earlier, Dougie, you mentioned about social media. Um, so I have a question about that. I guess social media has played, played like a really huge role um, in furthering the Black Lives Matter movement, um, deaths in custody movement, and uh, lots of movements. Um, particularly popular among young people, definitely. Um, but in some ways it has warranted critiques that use um, on issues such as performative activism. And I'm wondering if you have, either of you have any thoughts on that, I guess, and what experiences you've had with that and how you feel about it. Yeah, I'll go. Um, <laughs> particularly about performative activism. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like half my timeline was, was filled with performative acts of you know, solidarity. And, and I really challenge a lot of the people in my lives, um, you know, mainly non-Aboriginal people in my lives about what they were doing beyond the trend. Um, and you know, particularly with some of my close, close friends who, who you know, who are white, um, I, I challenged them to come to the Black Lives Matter March. Um, and they all did, the boys who I went to college with. They all come from very well-off families. Um, they all come from that's all, you know, all went to private schools, um, but, you know, all APS boys, so like, you know, the private school system here in Vic, um, which, you know, some of you may have come from too. And I challenged them and they did, and they showed up and that was sort of step one. And for me, it was around, okay, it's all well and good. You know, you showed up, um, you didn't take any pictures and put on the gram afterwards because I told them that well, it wasn't what was important. It was about having those conversations about why you came today to your parents, you know, who might be a little bit more older and you know, a bit have an archaic mindset, so to say. And, and they did, they had those conversations with their mum and dad with their grandparents. Um, and then they have those conversations with, you know, the rest of their friends that, you know, I wasn't friends with. And and for me, it was about, that's great, that, but that's only one step. That's really only one small piece of the puzzle. Um, what are you constantly doing um, beyond this week? And, and I challenged them again, I said, after knowing and experiencing this and seeing 100,000 people here this March and seeing how much this affects me as you know, one, of your, one of your mates, one of your brothers, I really challenge you not to, to go and celebrate Australia Day, to come to this, this equivalent this March and come to the Invasion Day March in January 26 and 2021. And for me, that's, that's when it really comes to the, the fore, whether they're actually real or not, whether the things they did were performative or not. Um, I trust that they won't. But you know that's up to them, and I feel like 
it really is up to you as individuals how about how you go about it. You know, I see many people now still have the black square on their on their little Instagram profile, and that's it's, it's fantastic. That's all good, but what are you doing beyond that? How are you educating yourself? How are you further educating yourself? How are you further educating those around you? And beyond education, you know, as as sort of Till and I both mentioned, what are the practical, pragmatic things that you're doing to better yourself and to better those around you? Um, I don't have the answers for that. I can help to give you the resources and to, to I can sort of help to put you on that path, but I'm not going to go ahead and do it for you. It's up to you. And that's where the, I guess, the personal accountability comes into it. What are you willing to do? Yeah, and I'll just add, you know, I actually think this whole country has a toxic level of the formative allyship. Like, allies mean shit if you don't actually do stuff. Um, you know, for example, it's not just at an individual level. We have people like those in positions of power who froth on symbolism and performative um, notions of, you know, apologies, sorries, um, of close the gaps, of, um, you know, politicians trying to speak language when they're not connected to community. Like the whole country is performative and it's a toxic level of performative because the underbelly of this country is that we continue to be oppressed. And so I think we actually have um, a huge responsibility to kind of take the leap in terms of uh, moving beyond, you know, performative allyship. Uh, and that means showing up in all different spaces, not just feeling good. Actually, one of the things is, you know, I was speaking to one of my elders about, you know, shit, like kind of asking the same question, like, Arnie, what am I, am I doing all right? Like, do you want me, should I be doing something else? Should I um, be advocating in a different way or a different space in terms of creating change? And one of my elders said to me, look, there are no rules to this. In fact, you, you should be breaking the rules in terms of the kinds of change that, that our people need. And, you know, that was really, that really spoke to me because we've always been kind of taught to, to understand the rules, to play by the rules. But I guess my elder was saying to me, you need to learn how to better push them rules. And yes, you know, learning the system is one part of better pushing the rules but at the same time you actually have to get really uncomfortable with those conversations you have around changing it like um you know me walking into a court every day does not feel good to me because i am black and the expectations on me are generally lower because i'm a black woman it's it's common for me to be mistaken as the defendant and i just think that um you know for example, as, as Dougie was saying about individual responsibilities of, of unlearning the, the toxic stuff you guys have learned, um, lots of people will say to me when I do my advocacy, like, oh, you know, you're a criminal lawyer, you shouldn't be writing or you shouldn't be doing this. And one of the nice things that I did this year, I think that non-Aboriginal people have engaged in is, is create Black Father Book Club. So if you guys don't follow Black Father Book Club, get on there now on Instagram. But it's a really nice growing community of people who um, are shit scared, I think, on the one hand, but then taking the individual action of like, 
unlearning these toxic toxic western ways of thinking about the world um and and engaging in first nation stories and, and our depth of understanding about the world which is our so our notions of sovereignty our ancestors how our ancestors are so important to us you know white people don't speak about that like i mean that's what's so concerning like they don't see themselves in a legacy of what their ancestors have gifted them or maybe they do but in racist ways but i just think that um you know, showing up in so many different spaces, whether it's book clubs, whether it's your lawyer, whether it's your families, like start with your racist members of your families, people. Like that is the starting point, call them out. Um, and and I also think coming back to uh, Annie, your point about social media, um, we just have to keep making sure that we use social media in a way that um, is not performative. That was a great answer. Thanks, Tila. And thanks, Dougie, for your answer. I think that uh, social media conversation is so interesting because it can be so powerful and such a positive force. And then it also obviously does carry a lot of issues. Um, I have a question from the audience that um, was submitted prior to the event. Um, and I guess, given your work on the Uluru Statement, Tila, this is probably um, a good one for you to respond to, but also Dougie. Um, so I guess, what do you see as the biggest, this is a question by Kelly, by the way. Um, what do you see as the biggest challenge towards achieving the goals of the Uluru Statement from the heart? So um, the Uluru Statement from the art asks for two things. It calls, I'm gonna cut out because my phone keeps ringing. Um, it calls for a constitution enshrined First Nations voice to parliament um, and then a Makarata commission to enable treaty and truth telling. And the whole issue within these calls to actions are that um, they are asking the Australian people to change systems, essentially. You know, this is not about ceding sovereignty. This is hardcore power shifting um, changes. And in terms of getting the work done, um, you know, it's it's a difficult challenge because it requires a double majority of the nation to get it across the line. Um, and it also means that from a First Nations perspective, we have to deal with our own black political um, side of things. And then also, on the other hand, try and shift and persuade a nation. And um, from, a, from a First Nations perspective, you know, everything that we do People need to understand that we have a huge diversity of opinions um, in our community and that we need to understand that um, a first name, what, what, the, what the voice is calling for. The voice is simply calling for the enshrinement of a power shift um, to in order, if we're going to engage in treaty negotiations, then you at least need to hear us. Because the one thing that the Australian state has never done is it's never been accountable to our community voices ever. It's come in, it's done interventions, it's said it's going to close the gap and it's not done that in a decade and it continues to rip resources out of our communities. And that's been devastating for us um, in terms of our life expectancy, in terms of our incarceration. And I think that from a First Nations perspective, the challenges are two-pronged. The, the challenge is communicating to, to First Nations peoples what the call to action is, 
um, and, and how that is not um, an act of ceding sovereignty. And then the, the second challenge is that you're trying to persuade a double majority of the Australian people. And um, that, of course, is one of the biggest challenges that this country could ever face. And I think uh, with respect, you know, the, the order of the reforms are really important. And I, I should emphasize this, that the voice coming first is really important because Australians know the truth. This country was colonized without a treaty. Like, how, we can't deny that fact. That's an actual fact of the legacy of our history. And some of the contemporaneous documents that have come out of the dialogue, so, you know, you're all lawyers in here. Um, I, I was a working group leader on Section 5126. So everything that Parliament does has to be lawful within the Constitution. Um, and one of the things that people had to grapple with was if, like the question of how do we get to a treaty where we're able to hold the political state to account. And right now, if we were to go and enter a treaty, who's interpreting those treaties? Who, who is holding the system to account? Because you can't rely on colonial courts to do that. And those are lessons from, uh, you know, the international community around um, the fact that even jurisdictions where there are treaty, there's huge power imbalances and there's huge, um, there, there is huge disputes over terms, terms of treaties. And so what First Nations people or a cross section of the First Nations community said was that if we're able to entrench a powerful voice, then that is the starting point in order to all of the First Nations being able to sit down at, at the treaty table. And I think that that's a legacy, I've, that, that's a challenge I've committed my life to, is that I want that to happen before um, we pass. I want to see treaty. I want to see treaties. But how we get there is the question. And, and uphold black sovereignty. And, and, you know, and I think that we live in, we actually, Australia is a uniquely racist country. It's uniquely racist because from a moral point of view, if you look at other colonies around the world, other colonies when Europeans invaded, they acknowledged that there were people there on that land. They acknowledged on Turtle Island that there were First Nations people there, Inuit and Meti people. They acknowledged in Arotua, the land of the Long White Cloud, New Zealand, that there were, there were people there. Um, here, we still haven't grappled with the, the formal acknowledgement that we have pre-existed and we are sovereign to this land. And it's a foundational question that will haunt us. It will haunt us until we um, grapple with it. And it's gonna be a hard conversation around enshrining a voice and treaty and truth telling. Because there's no beginning and end point to truth telling either. Lots of people say we need truth first, but in fact, on the you've got many Australians um, going on their own journey of truth. But a lot of First Nations peoples, if you listen to the community and if you listen to elders, a lot of First Nations people say, hey, this, this onus is not on us as black people. In fact, white people need to be truthful about what they did to us. And so the concept of truth telling is like, it's not about a formal process, like a huge Royal Commission. That, that's not what was anticipated. What's anticipated is a process where 
um, after a voice is established, if mob want to engage, they can engage. If mob don't want to engage, they don't. But the onus is a dialogue. Like the onus is not on us as First Nations peoples to be so traumatised to tell our truth. And I think that's why the sequencing of the reforms is so important. And it's also the challenge of getting them up. Yeah, definitely. Um, we have another student question, so from Isabella, and we're just building off what she submitted um, generally on this idea of law students um, creating more space for Indigenous voices and perspectives in the classroom and in an educational context. Um, do you, either of you both have anything to say about that in terms of particularly a legal curriculum where we, you know, learn native title for like a couple of weeks in property law and it's very sparse in terms of our legal education. Do you have any, um, you know, advice or comments about how to approach this, what we should be doing? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to start and speak to a number of different things. Um, that sort of what Teal was touching on before, that there isn't, I guess, an homogenous, a homogenous voice for Aboriginal people. Um, I think to start off that, you know, as, as law students to really ground yourself with in, you know, who are the traditional custodians and land in which you're learning on, um, understanding the nuances that exist um, within that. And then obviously, you know, on a statewide level. So for example, I speak from you know, your Yorta background, our country does not sit within one colonial state border. We sit on both sides of the Murray River. And so we are equally Victorian and New South Welshmen, you know, Cumbragunja sits on the New South Wales side and and, you know, whereas Shepparton sits on the Victorian side. So the nuances and complexities of, of each, I guess, even each mob um, is, is so diverse from mob to mob. So become familiar and, and educate yourself on on and with the people who, where you're learning and you're living. Um, and then I feel, uh, so for me, it's, it's really important to, to not expect sort of what Tila was saying before to not expect Aboriginal people to and First Nations people to have to be the token educator you know to not look always to you to your your Indigenous students who you may be in your cohort and expect them to have to bring up the trauma and, and educate you on some things yes there's going to be some people who are more than happy to for me I, I, I was comfortable in that role of being the educator often because I was a token Aboriginal student within my year level all through primary school high school all through university um, and, and sorry, not through Oxford University, I take that back because there were many Aboriginal people who I, who I you know, met at, at the University of Melbourne who are now my closest friends, who are my, you know, my brothers and sisters. Um, and I feel like, you know, there were some of us who were happy to, to step into that role and educate and because we felt that, you know, if not you, then who? And then that was, uh, I guess, something that I really hold close to my heart. My um, late uncle, Alf Bamlett, who was, you know, did a lot of different things here in Victoria often said that, you know, if not you, then who? And it's the little responsibility that I chose to take upon myself. But don't expect that from all of the Aboriginal people in your lives. Um, you know, for, for far too many, it's like, particularly when there's, you know, traumatic things going on and the shit that we're dealing with, you know. Um, Aunty Tanya Day, for example, is, is a relative of mine, distant relative of mine. And so there's certain things that, you know, I'm happy to speak about. And I will, I will gladly speak about them within comfort for you. And I had those conversations at college. I had those conversations at university. Um, but I feel like, yeah, just really temper yourself and temper your expectations of the Aboriginal people that you're in your lives. If they're happy to speak up, then by all means, you know, they'll have a conversation. But don't expect that. Um, and that's when some of, sort of my first initial point is that, you know, educate yourself for, first and foremost on 
who the mob is or you're living and learning from, what's the nuances that they have. Learn about, you know, the 38 clan groups, nations here in Victoria. Learn about the 38 nations in Victoria and understand the nuances that exist there. Um, because, you know, even in Victoria, there's such diversity within that. You know, not even, you know, within diversity of culture and diversity of, of our ways of being and knowing and, you know, our, our spirituality. You know, for example, you know, Bunjil was a creative spirit here in Kulin Nations for Mawandri people. And then Yodi Yoda side is Biami. Biami is a creative spirit. So, yeah, it's understanding those nuances, understanding the complexities, and don't expect Aboriginal people to teach you if they don't, you know, because they shouldn't have to if they don't want to. Awesome. Tilly, did you want to add anything to that? Um, I think Dougie summed it up well. I just think, you know, before, before I was a lawyer, I was a teacher and it's still the same shit. Like you're still ticking boxes in systems that are built to, to erase us, to literally erase our existence. Um, and I think the privilege of being a student at a university is that you are among like-minded people and, uh, you know, at law school, for example, it wasn't necessarily what I learned in the classroom. It was how we organised as a collective, as students, where we started the first, the country's first First Nations moot. And, you know, non-Aboriginal non students in the law school were like, oh, what? They can't do that. But like, yeah, we can. We can moot on issues that affect us if that's what we want to do. And I just think better organising, I mean, creating and holding spaces like this, is really important um, and engaging and continuing the conversations and and to believe that we are creating change through these conversations like we are doing it and this is the, the you know the change in action but we need to sustain the energy for it we need to like not you know you you guys don't have you can't use the excuse of being tired you cannot like we are freaking exhausted and we are still showing up and for, for non-Black people, you do not get the excuse of being tired. Um, and so I just think that constantly reminding yourself that, sure, you know, go tick the box, um, speak to your dean if you need to in terms of the curriculum, like write complaints about what's happening, the comments that are made, call out your classmates. Like it is scary, but you need to call out your classmates in public forums. It's not okay. Like racism is not okay. And I think the ignorance is not okay either. And I just think that if we keep taking these small steps forward, we'll get there. Awesome. Um, another question from the audience, um, which is about COVID and I guess how COVID has affected the Black Lives Matter movement and movements for Aboriginal justice. Um, and I guess activism more generally. I'll reflect on that. Um, with the success of the Black Lives Matter, uh, the Black Lives Matter marches across the state, you know, across the sorry, across the country, especially here in Victoria, you know, we've, um, you know, how long have we been in lockdown for? You know, I've been in, working from home since March, since the start of March, and the success that, you know, there were no community uh, transmissions, no community infections that came out of any of those marches, out of any of those protests, shows that we can still do and achieve things even throughout this pandemic, even throughout this. And that really goes to the essence of, again, um, who, who I guess I am as Aboriginal men, who we are as Aboriginal people, that we don't live in isolation. We, we The warriors of Aboriginal resistance, the, the organisers who organised the rally in Melbourne, ensured that 
we were going to protest, but we we're going to protest in a way that was safe, in a way that wouldn't um, expose or, or risk any of Aboriginal people to, to COVID. And, and we did that. It was so, so successful. And the hats off to war for doing that. And hats off to all the Aboriginal organisers around the country for, for ensuring that. Um, because, you know, can only imagine. They, they tried it to, to, to place blame. Politicians and, and media try to place blame on the protests. And even to this day, they still try to place blame for the second wave that we're currently experiencing here in Victoria. But it is going to show that it was, it was not in any way, shape or form the cause of the second wave here in Victoria. And for me, that again, just, it just highlights that we never do things in isolation. We never do things as an individual, us as Aboriginal people. We're always considering, you know, how this affects our community, how this affects our family. And, you know, the protesters, you know, ensure that they had the support of the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, that they had support of the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation. So two of the big statewides here in Victoria, to, you know, to, to um, be able to provide PPE, to be able to provide face masks and, and, and sanitizers. For, for those that went to the protest uh, here in here in Nam, so um, for me it's like one look at us as an example of how we do shit. We, we do it exceptionally well, and and the protest is just one example of that. But then it's also highlighted, you know, just how at risk we are, and the importance of you know COVID with you know the many I guess deficits that we face in our lives, unfortunately, you know, if, if COVID were to, you know, enter into aged care here and any of the Aboriginal um, community orgs, the aged care residences, it would be devastating. Mm. But again, it's with thanks to the Aboriginal ways of knowing and being that we've been able to prevent that to, to the state. You know, there've been no infections um, of any Aboriginal, of any of our Aboriginal elders in Victoria because of because of that. So I think it's highlighted a lot of the things that we do well. And I feel like those stories need to be shared with the media. Those stories need to be shared within your circles. Um, and, and it showed that the, for me, that if you enable us to use up these platforms, then we can only do well, you know. Yeah, certainly. I think from a community perspective, like a black community perspective, COVID-19, like if you look at the statistics of, of the Indigenous community in Australia, we have the lowest infection rate of First Nations peoples around the world. And I think that just really speaks to exactly what Dougie said, like we know exactly what's best for our people. It was hard. We had to break our kinship in terms of like not seeing our elders and not seeing our old people. I, I had to lock down my community before my local government locked it down because they were too slow to act. But um, I think exactly what Dougie said, it just goes to show in terms of the way in which we know how to care for our community and our elders in particular, that we know as Blackfellas what is best. And then the other thing in terms of COVID-19 and the activism was, as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, with the Wallama court that I'm working on, like the, the state government kind of doubled down police powers, it broadened police powers, it continued to invest in um in policing and that made it even more difficult to make a proposal um for for a systemic change uh and it kind of halted a lot of where the attention was in terms of um what politicians thought community safety was as opposed to 
what my activism around the Wallaman court was. And then separately, I guess, with the Uluru statement, like I've, I've traveled for three years on my own money, um, jumping on a plane every weekend, going into community organizations where at the invitation of community organizations. And it obviously changed the nature of that kind of community engagement and activism. Um, just simply because you can't travel. Uh, I mean, even kind of the nation's attention, like people's attention was was shifted, not from huge, from like from huge big thinking ideas to more kind of like into survival mode for, for and I think that in terms of where people place their attention, that that certainly affected um, the activism I was doing in terms of traveling the country and doing the other estate and stuff. But it's picked up again heaps in terms of people now live on Zoom. And we have to remember, you know, I think Dougie would agree, this is not the biggest challenge black fellas have been through this pandemic. Like white people are losing their minds over it. And I just think that what we should be more concerned about, we should be more concerned about the way in which our civil liberties are being breached and chipped. You know, when are the borders opening um, in, in kind of in health safety ways? Because the more we allow our civil liberties be chipped by individual jurisdictions, the harder it is to get them back. And I think that as a collective, we should be really concerned about that. We should be really concerned about the power jurisdictions have at this moment to kind of, and, and you know, credit to you guys down south. You were amazing. You did great, but that was difficult, yeah? I mean, when and how do we get out of this? When can I go south? When can you guys come north? And I think that the uncertainty around that causes me some anxiety. Yeah, definitely. Um, thanks for that, Taylor and Dougie. Um, I've got another student question that's been submitted. Uh, this is more careers focused. Um, so someone has asked, uh, wondering about a starting point after law school, if we want to work in careers that support um, Indigenous courses and Indigenous law. Uh, at the moment, opportunities are quite focused on informing us about commercial law and corporate opportunities. And I'm not too familiar with certain legal groups I could go on and work alongside, aside from vows, if I want to be involved. So do you have any suggestions obviously Curie Youth Council is one particular organization but yeah good question um yeah here in Victoria obviously the Victoria Legal Service is our, our statewide our peak body for for you know, Aboriginal legal services um and and apart from that unfortunately you know I think of, of JIRA the family violence legal service that exists um, but unfortunately there isn't and many others and and I guess it's it's a reflection on the work that still needs to be done to ensure that you know our our, uh, our people are being supported throughout the the legal service and the justice system, um, but I, I would say yeah, to if you're looking for a career, definitely start off with sales. Um, you know, you can become then more educated in the work that they do, and we sit alongside Val's at many of the the statewide government forums. Um, we work pretty closely with them through the work that we advocate for within youth justice. Um, so yeah, so I guess. Besides that, I'm not I'm not super familiar with, unfortunately. Um, I would I guess encourage them you to you know potentially look at VLA as an option, Victorian Legal Aid. Um, I know just through colloquially uh, through you know the work you know that, that's sometimes done within VLA. You know, hopefully, often work alongside many Aboriginal clients here in Victoria. Um, 
And I feel you know the work that I've done alongside BLA has been it's a really good organisation in terms of um, supporting Aboriginal people, ensuring that you know I guess Val's is under resourced. Val's doesn't have the, the the capacity to to undertake Aboriginal clients the way they need to I guess in the system. So um, just because you may not necessarily work for Val's work for VLA doesn't mean that you can't support Aboriginal people that are being engaged with the justice system. Um, so I, can't, I don't have those answers, unfortunately, sorry, but go and educate yourself with it. And I think by coming to these panels, by, by educating yourself at university, you're going to be able to better support an Aboriginal client if you become face-to-face with them because you have a, a very basic understanding of, of who they are and where they come from and the nuances that they live in, um, which can only be better for Aboriginal people, I feel. Yeah, and, you know, I had the same question to myself when, when I kind of was transitioning out into the profession. But um, my thinking, like if you ask me now, my thinking is very different to kind of where you guys are at in terms of, I would say that the career you want probably doesn't exist and you need to make it. Um, you know, I've got a few friends here on Gadigal who um, we feel quite frustrated with the way in which, you know, corporate kind of, jobs were promoted to us. I I did work in corporate for for two years um, and I learned some really fantastic research skills and discipline and drafting and writing. So I was able to really work on that skill set and become really confident in my research and, and legal writing. But I think now where I'm at, I'm just like, this country is so boring. We actually need to like redefine our legal system. And so for many, I've I'm kind of organising at the moment with a group um, of, of lawyers here who, and we've all kind of studied abroad at Harvard, Columbia, in Yale. Um, and we're going to kind of start to try and do some rebellious lawyering. So in about April next year, we're thinking about having a rebellious, Australia's first rebellious lawyering conference. Because I think the problem is this, as Dougie said with vows, the problem is that they're under-resourced. And they're often, these kinds of organisations are often at the whim of political decisions and funding. With rebellious lawyering, you need to better define the kind of ecosystem of philanthropic funding. Like we need to know where money is. And because that gives you the freedom to litigate. It gives you the freedom to litigate um, and kind of not have to work inside government policies, but also not be defined by corporate thinking. And I think that, you know, this country is so frustrating because lawyering is so beige that um, we actually need to collectively work together in terms of mapping out. Where it's, not, it's not like there's a lack of money in this country. Like, let's be real. It's one of the richest countries in the world. And it's not from a lack of the fact that there's no money or philanthropic support. It's that we're not organized enough to um, set these things up. If you look in North America, black African lawyers are so organized because they work with unions, they know where philanthropic money is, um, and they, they have a mission statement and a vision in terms of what they're gonna use their legal skill set for. And so, you know, my, my short answer is the job you're looking for probably doesn't exist and you need to start to rethink it now. 
and and you're probably going to go into if you're going to come into this space you have to get used to probably not earning a lot of money um to begin until you start to develop a better profile until you start to work on your legal skill set um and, and it'll take off from there but we really need to start to rethink um what our role is as lawyers and i think rebellious lawyering is is a start Awesome. That was a really great answer. Thanks, both of you. Um, we have another audience question. Um, and it's sort of on a different note. So, uh, so I guess it's about living in an increasingly polarised society. Um, and we have heard a little bit about how social media contributes to that. Um, and I guess the rift between different parts of society and a lack of communication, which um, then means that when we try and have conversations with those around us, we're coming from different perspectives. Um, that means we just don't reach understanding. So as a result, there are instances of tone policing where the real message is lost because it's not neatly packaged in an emotionally accessible way. So with all of that in mind, I'm wondering whether either of you have any advice on how to actually have conversations with those around us in a meaningful way. You have to get uncomfortable. You have to get, you know, you have to feel, you actually have to feel really awful about what your ancestors did. Um, and that's the reality. And I think that there is a difference between being disrespectful and uncomfortable. I think you can have uncomfortable conversations in respectful ways. Um, and I think that in terms of where we're at, like, after this conversation, what are you guys going to do in terms of, you know, showing up? What space are you going to show up in? What, what unlearning or new learning are you going to do? Um, and I mean, as a black woman, I get tone policed every freaking day. And it's generally, to be honest, it's generally by white women who don't like my, you know, how I speak or who, who think that, you know, there's, I'm angry when I'm actually just being truthful and putting the truth back to them. Um, and so the unfortunate part of um, this difficulty is that for people like me, I'm tone policed every day. And I think for you guys, it's a choice. And that, um, yeah, there's no answer to it. I don't have an answer to it. I just think that we need to realize that at some point we're all gonna be feeling super uncomfortable, but that's how change happens. Absolutely, 100%. Um, you know, imagine how uncomfortable it is for, you know, for the Aboriginal people in, in your lives to have to be the ones to have the courage and step up and challenge the racists in the room in, in whatever setting it may be, you know. And it is in those moments where it might be a bit difficult for you, but we face that every day of our lives. You know, I sit um, in spaces where, you know, I have to challenge people who live in very bureaucratic and high positions within the state government of Victoria. Um, and that's uncomfortable for me. But if I don't do it, then the voice for Aboriginal young people in Victoria can be lost and, and won't be utilised. Um, and I choose to do that every day because of my community obligations and accountability. And in, in comparison to that, you challenging a friend of yours who you may have known for a long time on something isn't really significant at all. That's, 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 that's pretty simple. If you can't do that with your friends, then who can you do it with? You know what I mean? If you can't do that with your family, then who can you do it with? And I would sort of, for me, it's sort of like, 
I lived that all through high school and all through my formative years around just the internal tone policing that I would do to ensure that I wasn't an angry Aboriginal man. And I always tried to come with, with, with reason and with logic and, and never any emotion because I didn't want that to be reflected upon me. But if you're not coming from a, an emotional point of view, where is the investment that you have for whatever you're trying to argue for? Um, and you know, I really, I think that emotion is, is, is a passion that guides us into doing what we get do every day. It's a motivation to get out of bed in the morning. So don't, for me, it's something that I've learned to do is to, to uh, tap into that because it makes me who I am, my passion, you know, my, my strength as a Wurundjeri and Yorta man. And if people don't like that, then that's their prerogative. That's on them. Um, so I'd really just encourage you to, to have those uncomfortable conversations, as Tila said, to, to become comfortable with the uncomfortable because we do it every day, even when we don't want to. It's forced upon us. So if we can do it, then there's nothing stopping you mobs from doing it. And I think Dougie made a really good point about reason, and that's something that we know all too well in lawyering, that if you're going to go into a battle, then you have to, you know, a lot of a lot of my thinking happens before these kinds of conversations. And, and as Black people, we pick and choose our battles. But I think Dougie makes a really great point for you guys is that in terms of when you're going to front up and, and be a solid ally, like, and be a staunch ally in, in certain situations, you have, to, you have to have reason. Like, otherwise people switch off. And um, I think that that's a skill set that comes really naturally to lawyers. So I don't think you have to worry too much about that because it develops over time but I think that you need to learn a better concept of the truth yourself in order to kind of execute your reasoning properly when you are going to go into a debate or where you are going to have a challenging conversation with your family. Yeah 100%. Um, I mean there's not much more I can add to that but I definitely you know in my experience as well and I'm sure many people in the um, in this panel have been told you know you're being too emotive but I agree. I think often being emotional actually means that you care about what you're talking about. But well, I guess we'll conclude the event here. We you know, wanted to hold this event, as we mentioned at the beginning, like kind of a non-bullshit conversation. Um, I think you touched on a lot of what we needed to hear, um, at least for me. Um, and you know, some of the audience questions, I just want to be honest, like we did um, filter some of them because like, I think everyone should feel a little bit sheepish about, you know, asking like, how can we be better ally? Like, what do we need to do? What is the role of like non-Indigenous people? Um, but yeah, so I think we learned a lot without going into those kinds of questions again. Um, but yeah, thank you all so much for joining us. We really appreciate everyone's time um, and enjoy the rest of your night. Thank you. Thank you.